Have you met Stephen Fry or did your yeah, publisher? Yeah. Have you have really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I went backstage because it, I'd been set up to meet him. He was giving a performance at the Opera House. And as we drove there, there were fireworks going off. And in the green room afterwards, he said, oh, he said, I wonder what those uh, fireworks were all about. And I said, no, they weren't fireworks. They were fryworks. <laughs> and he looked at me as if I was an absolute sort of piss fart. <laughs> yeah. So he changed the conversation. <laughs> I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. Before we jump into this episode, just a word of thanks to our friends at HESCO Australia for supporting this very important series of episodes on mental health, resilience, and burnout prevention. If you are trying to reimagine the way you run your in-house labs, as well as your digital radiography, and you really should, Go to hesca.com.au to find out what is possible. Now, back to our guest. Professor Gordon Parker, AO, is a professor of psychology at the University of New South Wales. Now, if we had to list his awards and achievements, it would be a long introduction indeed. But here are a few. He's the founder of the Black Dog Institute and director of the Division of Psychiatry at the Prince of Wales and Prince Henry Hospitals. In 2004, he received a citation laureate as the Australian scientist most highly cited in psychiatry psychology. And in 2018, he was a finalist for New South Wales Senior Australian of the Year. Oh, and that little AO that I read after his name, I had to Google that one. That one stands for Order of Australia, which is something that is awarded for distinguished service of a high degree to Australia or humanity at large. He has published 20 books and over a thousand scientific papers. And now, in 2021, he's a guest on the Vetvelt podcast. The other exciting thing that happened to Prof. Parker in 2021 is the publication of a new book on burnout. I say a book on burnout, but I think it's more appropriate to call it the book on burnout. Burnout, a guide to identifying burnout and pathways to recovery, encapsulates groundbreaking new research and clarifies what exactly burnout is, what it isn't, what the risk factors are, how to spot it, prevent it, and fix it. And these are exactly the topics that we cover in this conversation with Professor Parker. We are well aware that our profession is one of the highest risk professions for burnout, so arming ourselves with a better understanding about this nemesis is critical. So please enjoy Professor Gordon Parker. Welcome to the Vetfeld Podcast. We are thrilled to have you. Thank you. It's a hot topic, burnout, and in our profession in veterinary science, it is something that's discussed a lot. We have high rates of career attrition of people joining the profession and then, you know, five years in, they chuck it all in and, and leave the profession. And a lot of people are saying burnout is playing a role in, uh, in that. So we want to have a conversation and find out what you've learned through your experiences and what you can teach us, how to, how to identify it, how to fix it. Or at least how to prevent it. Gerardo, do you want to jump in with our first question? Yeah, man. Look, it was, it, it's interesting to hear that, um, that you experienced burnout. Is that right? Yes, I, I was aware of some symptoms of burnout, but uh, they crept up on me and I wasn't actually sure what the hell was going on. And so I suspected burnout and I decided that I'd start reading on it and then start researching. And uh, that chirped me up immensely. 
So you felt so amazing after reading about burnout that you were no, like, this is not, what I, this is, is that one of your strategies to turn a pathway for out? No, not quite like that. In fact, it's probably uh, not the ideal strategy to pull yourself back into the same field, which has been burning you out. But I guess you remember the king of Corinth, Sisyphus, who would pull a rock up the cave and it would roll back down again and then he'd do another. And after decades of being a, a researcher in psychiatry, um, you know, writing 30 papers a year and a book every couple of years, I, I really got to a stage where I was feeling as though here's another rock being pushed up and it's coming down again, here's another one and so on and so forth. But I think what, what took me out of it was essentially finding a new field. My career as a research psychiatrist has been generally to say, what's the model that operates here? Is it valid? Can we improve on it? Or should we reject it? If we can improve on it, then how do we do that? And then how do we measure what's under inspection? And then how do we manage it? And I've done that for the mood disorders over the years, and I essentially did the same for burnout. I'm, I'm just curious, Gordon, the, the first thing that I personally struggle with, and again, because we talk about it all the time, and I'm a veterinarian, and I know it's a relatively high-risk career, for personal reasons, I'm, I'm aware of it, like I'm on the lookout for these things sneaking up on you. But I'm still not sure what it actually looks like, and it's maybe yeah. a good place to start. In sure. your experience for you, what did it look like specifically versus I'm just tired or I need a holiday or you know I'm overworked or something? Well, let me, if you wouldn't mind, just starting with the dominant model mm -hmm. and then expanding on what our research has led us to in terms of how to define burnout. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> burnout under the sort of auspices of a US psychologist in the 1980s was defined by three features. And the same three features are used by the World Health Organization to define burnout, which they basically say is a syndrome reflecting workplace stresses. And the US researcher basically said that burnout is dominated by exhaustion, a lack of empathy, and thirdly, compromised work performance. And she and her colleagues then developed a measure called the Maslick Burnout Inventory or the MBI. And that's been used in over 80% of publications to define burnout. In our research, which built on the experiences initially of some 1,200 people with burnout and then a second study of over 600, we give a big tick to exhaustion. Secondly, the loss of empathy, which has sometimes been called compassion fatigue, sounds as though people have lost the capacity to care for other others. And therefore, it sounds a bit judgmental. It's actually a broader construct than that. It's a loss of feeling tone, where you, you lack the joy to be in life. Mm -hmm. Even in socializing, you find only superficial pleasure you find it difficult to be cheered up. Many people become quite insular and they avoid it. So it shouldn't, I think, be seen as loss of empathy. Certainly, I know many doctors who are experiencing burnout and because they experience for the first time, they're actually more empathic towards their patients because they realize for the first time what people are suffering. Mm 
So I think we need to challenge that loss of empathy and just say it's a loss of feeling tone. Okay. Of course, there's compromised work performance that goes with the territory. Fourthly, there's impaired cognitive functioning. And what we find is people say, I can't memorize things as I used to. And I find when I read, I can't read in depth. I tend to scan. And if we look back at the early descriptions of Bernard, and in the ancient days, it was called Achidia, A-C-E-D-I-A. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the then eight cardinal sins because the monks would wake up, this is 300, 400 years AD, one day and say, the sky is no longer blue. Um, I've lost my faith in God. I've lost my interest in looking after the flock. I feel that life is shallow and I feel a terrible person as a consequence. And as I say, it was regarded as a sin and punished. Only later did Pope Gregory come along and join Achidia with Trististia, which was depression, to create one composite bolus, which then confused depression with burnout, to create the seven cardinal sins. But the point I'm making is that cognitive impairment was there in 300 AD as mm. a key component of burnout, and yet it's missing from the modern triadic description. In addition to that, people, when asked about burnout, basically say they use the word lack. I've got a lack of pleasure. Mm. I've got a lack of energy. I've got a lack of sleep and so on and so forth. So despite feeling absolutely exhausted, most people with burnout find it's very difficult to sleep. Mm. In addition, there's emotional dysregulation so that they're much more likely to experience anxiety and depression and irritability. And there can be increased physical symptoms. So in our book, we describe people who end up, I mean, one of our final vignettes is of a woman who just collapses when she gets to hospital. Her blood pressure is about 60 over 40. The pulse rate is 160. And the doctors have no idea what's going on. Arianna Huffington, when, of Huffington Post, when she went down with burnout, she just fell to the floor, <coughs> hitting her head against the table. Some people with burnout become incontinent. So there's lots of physical symptoms. There's a lot of things going on in the brain. Obviously, cortisol is involved, the sympathetic nervous system, but numerous parts of the brain shut down. Neurogenesis gets uh, compromised. The telomeres get affected. Uh, and that, that, I think, accounts for the cognitive impairment that we see, all of which sounds pretty horrible, but I guess we'll get to the fact that these changes are correctable. So the point I'm making is that I think burnout has been inadequately defined for over 40 years with just this triadic definition. It's much broader than that. And then that leads to the risk of false positive diagnoses. The other aspect is that burnout has generally been considered to involve those in formal work. And what we've found is that burnout is just as likely and it has the same phenotypic picture in those who are caregiving and caregiving in extremists. Hmm. So at one stage, I saw a woman who had two intellectually challenged children. They screamed for 22 hours a day from the moment of birth. Her husband had left her. She was just exhausted. She had burnout. Mm. So caregivers, those who are looking after young children, those who are looking after elderly parents who have limitations, those who are sandwich carers caught between demanding children and parents can also get it. 
The other aspect to our definitional model, which we obviously take people through in the book, is that there is a predisposing personality style. And basically the key component is that burnout generally affects good people, people who are reliable, dutiful, conscientious, and perfectionistic. And it sort of makes sense. I used to say, you know, we don't treat perfectionists, we employ them <laughs> because they're such good employees. They work hard and long. Yeah. But because they're so dutiful and because they're often so caring, they are much more likely to get burnout, which is why somebody at golf the other day said to me, now, Gordon, I understand why psychopaths never get burnout. <laughs> so if you are in a career that requires you to be caring and requires you to be reliable, dutiful, if not perfectionistic, then you are at high risk. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes a long way to explain why doctors, teachers, vets, the clergy are so distinctly overrepresented. I mean, we look at the figures for doctors, 30% are having burnout at any one time, 60% over their lifetime. Rates are probably even higher for the clergy. That's really because because of the the empathy and the care, the compassion and the connection and and the need for unrelentless caring. Yeah, as a clergyman, you have to be prepared to be called out any time of the day or the night, uh, and always be supportive and caring and dutiful and reliable. And you almost, if you just look at veterinary science for the way they select who gets to study veterinary science, by default you have to be dutiful responsible, hardworking, and generally I think you'll have people who are more empathetic or caring because we it's a caring profession. So it's, yeah. we're basically saying let's put on our selection criteria people at high risk for burnout and then we work them really hard and let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I think, I think there are two ways of getting there. I think there are some careers that demand it of you. I think the law is a good example. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be perfectionistic to be successful. And there are other careers where you can start off with no particular personality style being overrepresented, but the career makes you perfectionistic. And again, medicine, yes, science, yeah, um, a whole series of other, particularly the caring professions. If you are going to be successful in the profession, if you are going to do a good job, if you are going to avoid litigation, yeah. if you're going to avoid errors of omission and commission, you have to be reliable. So the career can make you more and more perfectionistic. And then there can be some nuances. So for instance, for doctors, the biggest nominated cause in the last 10 years has been the electronic medical record. And as a doctor and having been exposed to the EMR, I can tell you it would drive you bonkers. And I'm sure you've got similar pressures in vet science coming from technology, in addition to some of the nuances such as looking after owners of an animal where it has to be euthanized and being a carer as a vet and being involved in having to put an animal down that's that's a huge stressful event so in addition to your personal stress if you have an owner who you see is distinctly distressed or maybe angry and you having to defend yourself mm-hmm. that is a huge condition specific stress that you people go through are you, are you? I don't know if you believe in the the personality types and social styles and things. Things like they got the driver, the expressive, the analytical, the amiable, that that kind of 
probably common, but maybe not so accurate constructs of people's personalities, but kind of what you were describing there is what I would consider to be like amiable would be caring, encouraging, kind of compassionate cooperates and, you know, wants to provide support and, and, and in surveys close to 80% of veterinarians are amiables. Is is that something that would like, is it's, it's, is that in in itself a potential that us as veterinarians are a high risk or is it the environment that we're in or? I don't think it's amiability okay. in and of itself. Yeah. I think it's the other component that I was talking about, the, the caring aspect. Yeah. So most caring people are amiable. Yeah. So I think that's where the link comes from. Okay. It comes from the caring aspect yeah. of constantly putting out and putting yourself out to look after people. And of course, if you are, you know, interpersonally skilled as a professional, you should be amiable, cooperative and effective. Mm-hmm. But the more you're giving out, the more you're draining away from your intrinsic energy capacity. Yep. The, you mentioned care and you mentioned that lack of empathy earlier. I, I want to dig into that a little bit. I, I do feel like to be able to do a caring job well, it really helps to be empathetic. But then there's a common phrase, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, the compassion fatigue thing. Is that a different thing to burnout or is it a component of burnout? Because we, I've certainly experienced it myself where you, you work too many hours and you get to a point where you've seen 200 sick animals in the last week and you go, I actually don't care about this next dying animal. Or I at least you can't muster the... The emotion for it, it's just another one. Yeah. Is, is that a component or is it a separate thing? Or what I, are we talking I about? think it's a component. The, the term compassion fatigue was introduced <clears throat> by a London nurse in about the 19, in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And she was describing nurses on the front end of heavy duty, relentless pressure, usually emergency department nurses. And they would just describe a loss of empathy, as well as usually exhaustion. Mm. So I think it's a component of burnout, mm. but it's not in and of itself the definition of burnout. Yeah. I, I think from what you said earlier, it sounds to me like, because I've certainly had, had that where I, I lost that empathy at work, but I still had the joie de vie that you said. I could still come home and be happy at home or go for a walk and, and feel joyful maybe just not in that situation. So is that where we draw the line to say, well, if you feel that at work, but you go home and you still don't give a shit about anything, is that when you start saying, well, maybe this is a a case of burnout? It's hard to know um, what's actually going on there, but my speculation would be that people go through stages of burning out and of being burnt out. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like Hooke's law of elasticity. that You know, stretch something within its elastic limits and it will come back. Stretch it beyond its elastic limits and it just won't bounce back. Uh If you've had a really heavy day, but you can go home and you can unwind and you're going to have your one to six glasses of wine (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, whatever, then your burning out process across the day Uh may well be attenuated. But if you, and this is what I see more commonly, if you're a lawyer who spend 12 to 15 hours a day in the office doing their six-minute billable hours, you know, (laughs) and then they go home 
and they start working on their brief for the next day to two or three in the morning and they yeah. don't have the downtime, then I think you're driving the burnout risk much, much higher. Yeah. I mean, what we know is from folklore, talking to people with burnout, what do you find helpful? And they say, talking to others, having a holiday, exercise, and de-stressing strategies like mindfulness, meditation, yoga. Mm. So your description of coming home and relaxing, mm -hmm. I think, is automatically decreasing the burnout diathesis. Okay. Mm. I really like that picture of the, of the elastic band. That, that's a really good way to think about it, Gerardo. Sorry, interrupt. Yeah, Hooke's Law. Uh, I put it in the book, but uh, uh, one of the editors didn't like it. They thought it was far too technical, but I actually think it fits quite nicely. I think it does. I like it. Because I think the point I wish to make, if people are burning out, then in fact, there are a whole series of strategies to reverse that process. If they are burnt out, often then they really have to rework their whole life, often changing their job. So the difference, I think, throws, comes through to actually management as well. Okay. So we got a question that uh, I, I would be interested to know if, 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 this is, if this is a real thing. So my experience over the last 10, 12 years in the profession is that things come through and then things just disappear. It's like five or six years ago, compassion fatigue was the thing. And then, and then all of a sudden it just disappeared. And then all of a sudden now it's burnout and it's like, fashion's burning out. And then, I don't know, two years time, is it going to disappear? Like, like, so I, my, my, my feeling is, and I don't know if this is real, is that there, there's these like catch conditions that people go, I, I tick three of the 10 boxes. I have that. Now I am this person that has compassion fatigue. I'm this person that's burning out. Like is, 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 is that a thing or, or is, is, and what percent of people who think they have burnout actually have burnout? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a very reasonable, cynical position Gerardo, to hold. I mean, we've seen that in medicine, haven't we, with repetitive strain injury, um, an epidemic of it, and then, then it moved on. There is a real risk of overdiagnosing burnout by healthcare professionals and by individuals themselves. So in, in the book, we have a measure we've developed called the Sydney Burnout Measure. And it has high sensitivity. So if you have burnout, you will get a decent score. But its specificity isn't that impressive. And we would hold that the same operates for all other burnout measures, but most people don't admit to that. So for instance, if you turn a high score, you might have primary depression, you might have primary anxiety, you might have anemia, you might be on anti-cancer drugs that are causing fatigue, etc. Yeah. So what we attempt to do in the book, which is sort of coming back <coughs> to the question, is to say, consider the symptoms that we have described and then we take people through a clinical reasoning approach of considering other issues, whether they're psychological or physical, because they can create four positives. Even further in support of your concern, I gave you some data earlier about the prevalence of burnout in doctors. But if you look at the actual data, and there was a big meta-analysis looking at the prevalence rate of burnout in doctors 
the prevalence rate in differing studies ranged from 0.5% to 85%. The reason largely, again, comes down to the measure used, the MBI, because it has three scales, but has no cutoff scores, has no rules how you join the scales together. And so therefore, you can set the cutoffs very low, and then so many false positives will come into the story. But despite those measurement errors that are replete in the literature, I don't share your concern or cynicism that burnout is just a passing 21st century affectation. Um, we know that burnout isn't limited to Western societies. If you go to any third world country, you'll see it. In Asia, every Asian region has a category of death by overwork where people die from heart attacks and strokes as a consequence of burnout. It's been around a long period of time. It's just that it's been poorly diagnosed, poorly appreciated, and other things have been put up to explain it. So chronic fatigue syndrome probably captures yeah. many with burnout, depression captures many people, etc. But all the evidence suggests that burnout rate is increasing, the prevalence is increasing, has been so for at least 20, if not 30 years, and largely reflecting the 24-7 model where we're constantly on call and having to be available. So I share some of your concerns, but I believe that it is a true phenomenon and that the rates are genuinely increasing. And they're actually increasing more in women than in men, which goes with the well-being literature. The well-being literature, you know, basically said that when all the 20th century devices came into action, we'd all be happier and blah, 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 blah. Over the last 30 years, every study has shown well-being levels haven't changed in men over the decades, but in every country they've decreased for women. And so well-being has gone down, and that, I think, is the other side of burnout. That's fascinating. You, I'm interested why. why do, is, is there any theory on, on why that is the case? Well, in the old days, women stayed at home and their husbands went off to work and their job was to run the house and look after the kids. Now the requirement is that they're out there working mm -hmm. and they're having a, just as successful a career as a husband. Mm -hmm. They're also expected to come home and be uh, you know, a partner to their husband. Mm -hmm. And they're also expected to look after the children. And if there are any elderly relatives, particularly failing or flailing, they're also expected to look after them. Yeah. So yeah, the general model is that women are having to have two, if not three careers mm -hmm. in comparison to their, to their husband. Yeah. So explaining, you know, the burnout phenomenon increase uh, further and why it's more common in women and why it's extremely common in those who are highly, highly, highly caring. I just make another point about the well-being paradox. If you read positive psychology, and I've followed it fairly closely for the last few decades, mm -hmm. it was held that having a job was better than having no job. Having a career was better than having a job. Having a calling was better than having a career. It all sounds very good. The higher you go up the hierarchy, the better. Mm -hmm. But basically what you find is the higher you go up the hierarchy, the greater the level of burnout. And so in the book, I look at carers in particular. And as part of that, I decided I'd look at the ultimate carer, Mother Teresa. 
And after she died, they found some letters that she'd written a few years before her death, where she talked about how she'd lost her faith in God. And, you know, the sun no longer shone. She had the old-fashioned achidia. She had burnout. But she did not know it was burnout. She thought that she had lost her faith in God and that she was a terrible sinner. Now, that is so poignantly tragic. But the point I'm making is those who get more and more involved in high caring are at risk of burnout. And women are more likely than men to fall into that description. And they're more likely if they're caring people, and as Gerardo said, amiable people. Mm. It's a very, very important conversation. I'm not sure if you're aware, but veterinary science is becoming increasingly female dominated. There's more and more. There's what's it? Would you? What? What would the be the percentage? Ninety percent. Ninety percent. Yeah. So it is. It, it, it used it to be. It used to be hundred percent male. Then it was maybe three decades ago when Hubert graduated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was maybe 90% male, but now it's flipped completely. But it wasn't just 100% male. You had to be male and also play for the Wallabies. As well. <laughs> oh, yes. It was male and play rugby. I'm fairly certain. All, that, I'm 100% certain that was it. You're male and you play for rugby because no one plays cricket. And I grew up in a family like that. My mom is a – both my parents are medical doctors. But it was exactly that scenario. It was still the 1980s in South Africa because so mom had a full-time job but was also meant to be mom and yep. the primary housekeeper and was in charge of us and, and, and. And miraculously did it and to my knowledge never had burnout but maybe she never admitted it. <laughs> did you play rugby? Oh, I, yes, yes, but I wasn't. Uh... <laughs> did you play rugby? You were rugby human? Yeah, badly though. <laughs> I, I, I'm with Gordon I... I, I I did it for the social side, but <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. And I, I I was uh, researching with a an academic vet uh, forty years ago, and I remember going to the University of Sydney uh, gala day one weekend, and they had competitions where you had to milk a wild cow, you know, and uh, there was a sort of a lolly chase where lollies were hidden under moo poop. <laughs> <laughs> And then there was a, an athletic event where you had to eat three cold pies and drink six glasses of warm beer <laughs> and then, you know, run five kilometres and, and then leap over a long jump, which was full of moo poo. And, and everyone <laughs> was a male then. So there's been this huge change, obviously, in your profession. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's changed that much regarding that. There's still there's still rituals of first-year vet students. So if I have identified um, the electronic medical record as one of the key drivers mm. for doctors, mm. what do you guys think are the key drivers for burnout in the profession? So if you say electronic record, do you mean record-keeping on a, on a computer? No, no, basically electronic medical record means when a patient comes into the hospital, mm-hmm. you then have to fill out field after field of information. If you're a psychiatrist seeing somebody for half an hour, during that 30 minutes, instead of looking at the patient, you're on the computer the whole time. Yeah. And you're having to put in information that takes 20 minutes out of the 30 to get it in. Yeah. Uh, it just drives creep people crazy. And, of course, lawyers love it because if you miss one field and something goes wrong, yeah. Yeah. Then, you're, then you're in, in difficulty. So are there equivalent technology aspects of being a vet that 
drive the burnout scenario? That's really interesting. You mentioned the, the note taking. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I yes, we have exactly the same. It is yep. it, we have to keep notes, and it and it. I'll come back to a theory that I have, and um, not necessarily. Well, I've never thought of it in terms of burnout, but certainly in terms of lack of job and career enjoyment. But yes, we have that. And interestingly enough, one of our previous guests, when we spoke to Ivan Gerardo, and we talked about burnout as well, um, he's done some research into veterinary burnout specifically. And and when we, he talked about his career as a young vet and how he explained it, I have the quote. He said, you're sitting there, you're doing this to work, and then you're sitting there for hours afterwards doing these effing notes yep. that nobody's going to read, but when they read yep. it, you're going to end up in court. And, yep. you, and you build this resentment and you go, why am I doing this? This is not veterinary science. This is just note-taking. We would, we, out of a, so we used to do, I, I used to do 18, 20 hour shifts. The longest shift I've done was 22 hours and seven hours of that was just note-taking. typing records. And, and I can understand why, because we're seeing other people's patients. So clearly you yeah. have to have good, good notes, but it does reduce my enjoyment of the job for sure. Yep. And, and I have this th- theory that I'm building about, heart-based veterinary practice so doing it for the love of or for the enjoyment or for the service versus the way we can practice which is more fear-based where we practice from what's going to go wrong if i stuff up or i've got to cover up by doing these these thorough notes and it's to me there's definitely a a link there with how much i enjoy my work am i doing it because i want to help somebody or am i or am i thinking about how can i stuff this up and how should i cover myself basically or, or, or are you actually spending the time doing the things you'd love yeah. surgery diagnosing exactly. treating patients yeah. communicating with clients or the, but then knowing that at the back end of that because if i see so many patients it's going to exponentially increase the number of hours i'm going to see you typing notes where i'm falling asleep yeah what about other factors gerardo are there other things that you think of when i top of head i i think there's just a higher expectation of vets, even in the 20 years of my career. 20 years ago, our clients were a lot more, you know, that's all right, something went wrong, there's no worries, we'll get a new dog. Um, versus now there is an expectation of it's a family member, you're treating it, and they are much quicker to to get on your case if it's oh, not done perfectly. Oh, no, I, we I feel that way. The nature we work in, because we work in emergency. Maybe. maybe. Emergency, like they want, they're, they're, they're stressed, they want their pets fixed. They come to you. We, 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 our fees are higher, mm. and they, they want resolution. They've finally gotten to the point where they want something fixed, mm-hmm. right? But whereas if, if we said, oh, we're not too sure, go back to your primary vet, and they do an x-ray, they see your foreign body, all of a sudden they're like, why didn't I went to the emergency last night? Why did I do it? I think there is a, an extra layer of unforgivingness, maybe, or a, a certain layer of in our, in our specific area. And, and are patients more litigious? Whether they are or whether we think they are, Gordon, I'm not sure. I, right. I, I certainly have not experienced a lot of it in my career, but certainly I think the fear of it is, is more. We certainly we talk about it more. Yeah. Uh, the fear is more, and in emergency, it's not uncommon. Like our, our complaint rates are higher than referring beds. And yeah, our- but I've worked in GP as well, G, and I wouldn't say it's vastly different. At least the, the fear of it is... I don't perceive it as as massively different to my GP years. One other thing, I'm oh, sorry, you go. No, I was just going to say, Gordon, we'll, Hubert and I will take this offline. <laughs> we'll fight about it. <laughs> Another factor, if you're asking what's changed, I think the, the advent of social media and we all have our Facebook pages and our web pages, and that is another big driver of fear. 
because yeah. because the be- clients use that they again. use like, that as a weapon or and even if they don't say it there's this fear of what are they going to do? They're going to badmouth me on social media. They're going to right. take me down. And I think that adds a lot of stress to the job. Yeah, I would say there's probably some vets who have suicided over that mm-hmm. that component of it. So, is it fear from social media, or is, is social media in and of itself putting incredible demands on you? you know that an owner can sort of get you on the phone at any time and want an immediate answer. And other aspects. I mean, certainly that's what we're finding in most of the professions where uh, burnout rates are increasing. It's the 24-7 presence. Not officially. We're not officially on on there. But I I do think, again, when you go on there socially, then there's a lot of comparison again. I mean, Gerardo's got a very popular uh, social media accounts and he probably stresses people out because he puts all the good stuff on there and makes us feel it fear. <laughs> no, Gordon, I, I think it's more the the, the threat of it's, they don't really access us and get and expect us to be available on there. Huh. But it's more that hey, look, if you don't fix this, if you don't give my money back, I'm going to go on social media. Huh. Right. So it's a, it's the use of right social media to to the detriment of either you or the business well that's the the, then you get the interaction with personality star that i was talking about being overrepresented in the successful professional to be perfectionistic and the problem with being perfectionistic is often you just see binary options so i either go left or right or either this situation is going to work out it's going to be a disaster so i've certainly seen doctors who've had completely false um, accusations about their surgery or whatever, uh, just go overnight into a suicidal mood. And I've actually seen suicides as a consequence where they've taken this binary view on the world and uh, not been able to recognise that there's always a third option or a fifth or a sixth or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think, again, uh, personality style is probably part of the equation. Mm. Uh, Gordon, there's a question I really wanted to ask for a little while now. And it's something you said that the Sydney, because I did uh, a burnout scale. I'm fairly certain it was the the MBI one, the, the yeah. Masley Burnout Index. And I'm really super keen to see um, the burnout scale measure that you, because it seems a bit more comprehensive or yeah. a bit more com- encompassing. Yeah. Like us as veterinarians, we're, we're, you know, we're all over the whole sensitivity specificity thing. So, so in my mind, sensitivity is that if, if you have burnout, it will pick up that you have burnout. But if you, but the sensitivity is not so low, so it could be something that is similar to burnout but not burnout. What are the common things that are like not burnout? Differential diagnosis. Yeah, the, what's, your, what's your differentials for this? Oh, I'll just respond to the first part of your question, first of all. So our measure has got 34 items. There are three appendices at the back of the book. <laughs> the first one is a template of workplace stresses. Yeah. So that allows people to go through and see what may be the particular nuances that they're facing. Mm-hmm. And they can be long hours, they can be a toxic boss, they can be conflict with values, blah, 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 blah. Then there's the 34-item measure of burnout. And then thirdly, there's a measure of perfectionism. To the second part of your question... The most common and false positive diagnosis would be somebody with a depressive condition, as against burnout. After that would come anxiety. And after that, there may be a whole tale of differing psychological 
conditions. But again, as I mentioned earlier, any number of physical conditions could account for it. For instance, on a related topic, chronic fatigue syndrome was said to be very high in China, but so is hookworm-induced <laughs> anemia in China, which okay. would make you meet all the criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome, <laughs> but it wouldn't be, wouldn't be the true post-viral CFS. Yeah. And that's one of the problems. So again, in the book, we invite the reader into a clinical reasoning approach. The problem with, say, going see your doctor is that most doctors have never had, as part of their education, any training on burnout, how to diagnose it, how to manage it. Okay. I certainly never in my years as a medical student, as a trainee in psychiatry, the decades I've been as a psychiatrist, never, ever had a lecture on burnout. Wow. So in a sense, we're all a bit in the dark. Um, people with burnout are in the dark. They don't know whether they've got it or they have something else. Yeah. They go to a health practitioner. The health practitioner knows a bit about burnout, may know something about depression and so on. So we try to encourage the reader into a process of clinical reasoning where they can take what you can get from a general practitioner, but also employ their own NAS to determine whether it's likely. Mm. Okay. So, so when you explain the, 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 the quiz... Gordon, it, it sounds super comprehensive. Does it take three days to fill out? <laughs> like... um, well, if you burnt out, it might. <laughs> if, you really, if you really burnt out, you probably won't get to the end. <laughs> That's how you diagnose oh, it. I'm sorry. I can't do I'm the like, wrong question. <laughs> I'm so used to quizzes, which are like 10 questions. Yes or oh, no. Right, you know? yeah. uh, <laughs> no, it, it would take anybody about uh, you know, one to two minutes. Okay. Oh okay. shit! Okay. okay, far out. Okay, that's a pretty quick quiz. I'm just, I'm just thinking, if you're a practice owner and one of your employees comes to you and says, "Listen, I think I have burnout." How would it go down if you said, "Are you sure you don't have a hookworm?" <laughs> <laughs> have you checked? I, you don't have I, I feel terrible for the listeners who actually, <laughs> but that, but I love it. It's like, it, yeah, I love the whole thing of comparison about the clinical science of burnout and hookworm. <laughs> yeah, or fit chronic fatigue. Okay, so where do, we, where do we go? Let's talk about um, should we should we go prevention or treatment? Yeah. Let's talk about prevention. So let's say you 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 do the quiz or you think well, and this happened to me earlier this year. I had major changes. We I sold a business, started new jobs, moved interstate, uh, trying to start a new business, a hundred things, and there were days where I thought, okay, I'm I'm at my I'm at my edge. I don't I don't think I'm burnt out, but I'm really at the edge of. I think what I what I can take, um, something's going to give if I don't change. What can you change? What do you do? What's the what are the practical steps to go? We are in this career that puts us at risk. We know that. Uh, what do we do to prevent it? Well, the book has inside out information. By that I mean the lived experience of people who've had burnout and what they've found helpful. And then we've got outside-in information where we've looked at the literature and we extrapolate, we look at how well it informs us, and then we try to join the two worlds together. Mm-hmm. If you're wanting to prevent burnout, then the issues would obviously be what are the scenarios that are putting me in a burnout risk? Mm-hmm. And they obviously have to do something about work, whether it's formal work or work at home. Mm -hmm. 
and then you nuance it. Is it the hours? Is it the demand characteristics of the work? Um, is it that I'm on my own? Is it that I've got a toxic environment? You work that out and then you consider how you may be able to modify that or not. Secondly, you need de-stressing strategies and they are talking to people, exercise, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, as I said before. But in addition, looking at how you live your 24 hours a day existence. Mm -hmm. What time do you go on your computer? What time do you turn your phone on? What time do you turn them off at night? Um, I mean, in the book, we have Americans describing how taking a pee for longer than two seconds drives them crazy. <laughs> and how, you know, people read bedtime stories to their kids while they're on their emails and their phones at the same time. So that 24-7 pressure, which can be relentless and can be encouraged, obviously, by multinational corporations, but even amongst the professions, we're being caught up in it, to, as an aspect of prevention and also an aspect of management, if not treatment, mm -hmm. you have to look at all those components and then say, what do I need to cut back? And we've got a wonderful vignette there from Patria King. Patria King extraordinary human being who set up Quest for Life organization where people go who are dying or people who are dealing with dying relatives or who have cancer or have anxiety, have depression, have burnout, and they get great interventions. Petraea tells her personal story, how she'd faced all sorts of incredible pressures growing up. Then she developed cancer, was told she'd be dead in a couple of years. She went off and meditated and came back and found the cancer was gone. And then she decided that she'd try and save multiple people with multiple conditions. At that stage, HIV was coming up to being a big epidemic. She was seeing people from seven in the morning to seven at night, not having time to have a glass of water. She was seeing people at night. If there was somebody dying, she'd often go to their home just to be with them, to console them. And on the weekends, she was going off and visiting wards where people were dying of HIV. And she got burnt out. So she tells the personal story. And then she decided how to restructure her life. How to say that I shouldn't be doing things to trying to save everybody. I've also <coughs> got to save myself. Mm -hmm. And she reprioritized many objectives. That also takes us into the territory of perfectionism because perfectionists always want to have everything right. Good enough is not good enough. Mm. And if you're going to prevent burnout and if you are a perfectionist, then you really do need to see how you should modulate your level of perfectionism. And is that, is that I, tied in with imposter syndrome? Um. No, I don't think so. Okay. I think imposter syndrome more comes from where you have a sense of inferiority. Yeah. And somehow you've ridden higher on the hierarchy than you think you deserve. And you're carrying a sort of level of guilt, imposter, whatever. Um, so I don't think there's a correlation there, no. Okay. Because some people will talk about perfectionism being a, an aspect of imposter syndrome where they, they feel like as if... <clears throat> 
they're above where they should be. So then they have to know more, know more, and then they won't do anything until they know enough. And then they become perfectionist around that kind of. Yeah. But I think there's another 50% that are the other direction where they don't think they're good enough and therefore they have to work harder and harder. Yeah. Yeah. So is there, is there strategies, is there tools, are there, I don't know, ways that are more effective at reducing burnout? Like you talked about, like holiday exercise, mindfulness, yoga, relaxing, drinking one to six wine, <laughs> wines per night. Um, are, are there, or talking to others? Yeah, okay. But, but are, are, there, are there, which ones are those? Are there, are, do you know which ones are better or do you have an idea which ones are better or is it? Well, there was a meta-analysis of treatments for burnout and they looked at several hundred papers. They culled them down to those that met basic criteria. There are only 14 studies. And basically, those studies really weren't sufficient to come to any conclusions. So what we've done, as I've mentioned earlier, we value the lived experience, what people with burnout found to be effective, and we we build that in. And then we also have looked at some selected literature. For instance, there was a very interesting book written by a Sydney journalist who had burnout, and she did mindfulness for a year and she had herself hooked up to everything you could think of, measuring cortisol levels, brain MRI, all sorts of things. And basically over the year, all the structural and functional changes in her brain settled with meditation, mindfulness meditation, Mm. including the length of her telomeres, which were going to dictate her longevity. So mindfulness meditation looks really good But on the other hand, I know people who say it bores me crazy. Um, And they'll say, well, look, no, yoga is better. For me, mindfulness doesn't fit with my personality. But if I go out on a golf course, I think I get to a degree of mindfulness there. I'm completely unaware of anybody on the tee next to me. And nature is all around me. So I think that you, again, have to tweak your personality to the de-stressing strategy. And again, a key point in the book is not a one-size-fits-all model. If you look at, go on Google and look up books on burnout, you'll see 70 books. And the great majority of them are written by somebody who's had burnout and they've got a simple model that they drop over it. Mm. And it comes through as a sort of preaching type statement. Yeah. Um, So I think we've got to say it's a horses for courses model. Mm where you have to factor in what is possible, what is changeable, where your personality is, and then take the best of the wisdom. So, for instance, for decades, I've gone up to psychologists because I'm, I'm no good at treating perfectionists. I've never been greatly successful. And I go up every couple of years and say to a good psychologist, what are your strategies? And I've never been persuaded over decades. But in the book, we abstract from two really good US texts with practical strategies for handling perfectionism. And then we've asked a Sydney psychologist, Rocco Crino, to write his template. And for the first time, I see common sense as to how to manage perfectionism. And it's not too ambitious. It gives people goals that are achievable, how to tweak things, practical strategies. So... As I say, I think the key thing is to reject a one-size-fits-all model and more accept that it's horses for courses. Hmm. 
So, so it would be like someone has to try things. They have to try different things, see what's works for them. It's kind of like, like their performance formula. This is their burnout avoidance formula. And- absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that you've got to preempt people feeling that they're failures. So if you're a proselytizer for meditation, you say to a patient or anybody, you must meditate, you must meditate, and they find it doesn't work for them mm. or they can't do it, they're going to feel like a failure. So basically, I think it's better to say, these are the options. Try one of these first and see if it works for you. If that doesn't, try this, then try that. And that's not being, I, I don't think it's being too loose. I think it's pragmatic and it's practical and it's realistic because some people love mindfulness. Some people can't stand it. Mm. Yeah. I can't stand Hubert, but he seems to think that um, I should be part of his relaxation and burnout <laughs> strategy. Uh, Gordon, how are you for time? I, I, I have. I'm fine. You're okay to get to get it on. Uh, I, I'd like to go. So these are great for prevention, and it sounds like for treatment as well. Uh, what about when we get to fulminant burnout? In, in my in my head, I look at once something's burnt, it's burnt. You're not getting it back. Let's say somebody's listening and they are burnt out or or you have a colleague or a friend or an employee who who's burnt out. What are the practical steps? What's step one? Do I go do I go speak to somebody? Do I have to quit my job or can I work around it? What how do you how do you handle it? What would be your strategy? Well let's start with the uh first part of your sentence that you sort of see it as uh, at times irreversible. Mm. If your fire is going out then you give it a bit more oxygen, a bit more fuel, and it will come up again. If it's gone out, you put a match under it and start it up again. Mm -hmm. So I guess by that I'm trying to say is I think that there are differing strategies for when you're burning out and also for when you are actually burnt out. Just there are for those two fire scenarios. For those, and I should also make another comment, when I started all this research, I was more pessimistic about helping people with burnout than our studies have revealed. Most people with burnout can recover from it. If you get to a stage where you're absolutely burnt out, then sometimes people do have to change their life. So I've seen surgeons who've taken up a totally differing career. Some people, it's a matter of, you know, changing, moving from the big city, becoming you know, a sea changer or whatever. So sometimes it does require cataclysmic change in people's lives, but that's only actually a small percentage. The people that do that, and all the literature on sea change is actually quite illuminating. 80% of people who do a sea change will say, it's worked out well for me. I have less money, but in fact, quality of my life is better. So it's a more optimistic scenario than one might imagine. And most people are in a stage of burning out. Where I get difficulties, where I get public servants, usually from Canberra, and they're in a department where their boss is screwing them and it's toxic and they're reliable and they're conscientious and they've contacted HR and HR is working for the boss, not working for the man. And every step they take, they're being screwed right, left and centre. And if that game goes on too long, not only they're burnt out, they're horribly depressed and they end up on a disability pension. And to my mind, 
giving somebody in that situation a disability pension is a metaphor for saying your life is over. So what I try to do in those scenarios is to get them out of the game, the toxic game, tell them to cut their losses. And that's really hard if you've got a reliable, dutiful, conscientious person who has genuinely done a good job and they're being screwed. But in toxic workplaces, then I think frequently that is the best strategy. Otherwise, it goes downhill, downhill, downhill. So I'm not sure there would be equivalent scenarios in the veterinary science world. There may be, where you have to actually encourage the person to be prized out of a toxic environment. Uh, maybe it gets to the point that you are burnt out, that you leave the place where you're at and then go elsewhere and have time out or whatever it may be. I, I would say that there are environments that people, that some of our profession are in that are causing them yeah. burnout. To answer your question, Gordon, absolutely is the case for many people in, in our profession. Unfortunately, right. many practice owners aren't trained to be leaders. Yeah. So they, yep. by default, often we do end up in, in situations this exactly like that. the individual, I think, needs good counselling because sometimes when they get to that cataclysmic stage, they can make a disastrously poor decision, whether it's to go on the pension or whether it's to walk out of the place and lose all their entitlements, whether it's to take no job at all. So good counselling and and you as the counsellor being an advocate. So, you know, frequently when I get somebody who's being screwed in a burnout situation mm-hmm. and the employer starts sending me formal letters I get back with a fairly simple message. This this person has burnout, which is entirely due to the work scenario, and I go through A, B, C, D, that this person is experiencing. If you genuinely wish to help this person, then you need to do A, B, C, and D. So I, I try to get it back to the people who are doing the shafting rather than let the patient be constantly sidelined or denigrated or exposed to other toxic forces. So so sometimes I think you need to be an advocate and many times you need to prevent the sufferer from making a impetuous decision that they may regret forever. Yeah. Man, this is amazing. Um, Gordon, I'm mindful of your time. Uh, It sounds like your book is going to be something that Possibly we all have to read. Definitely owners and managers of, of veterinary clinics need to read it. Is there is there anything that we've missed for this conversation that you think is important to, to mention, to pique an interest or a, a final message to get out there to our listeners? I, I think we've covered everything very well, but just another practical aspect from the book is that we have a series of resources mm-hmm. at the back of the book, and it has apps for just about every contingency that you think would be relevant for burnout. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's for reducing stress, whether it's feeding something on your phone that will prevent you being harassed, whether it's for perfectionism. There's a whole series of these very practical apps. So even though I've argued um, that (laughs) technology is infiltrating our existence, we're sort of coming back by saying, but also there are aspects of technology that can help you out of burnout. Yeah, I often look at that dichotomy going that's, it's a big part of the problem, but there are some solutions in there as well. Yeah. 
Gerardo, will you give us the title of the book again? Uh, I will definitely put it in the show notes as well. I'll give you the title of the book because I'm currently buying it right now. (laughs) I'm literally on Booktopia buying the book. It's called Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery by Gordon Parker. Who's our guest tonight? That was incredible. That was really good. Thank you, Gerardo. Thank you, Gerardo. Our goal here at the Vet Vault is to have conversations like the one you've just listened to that will give you inspiration and fresh ideas on how to create a thriving and happy career and life as a vet. You'll know by now that our focus is on the life skills that we need to navigate this challenging and rewarding profession of ours. But there's something that I've realized over the last few years of exploring ways to increase enjoyment of the job. That is that the vets who are confident in their skills and knowledge are, as a whole, more satisfied with their careers, which makes sense. When you feel rusty or uncertain in your knowledge, it's very easy for those imposter feelings to sneak in. I don't know enough. Am I good enough? Conversely, we know that feelings of growth and mastery are some of the greatest predictors of a happy career, which is why we created the VetVault Clinical Podcast. Three highly practical episodes every week. Conversations, not lectures, with world-class specialists. Tips, updates, real insights, not textbook theory short enough to listen to on your drive to work, but with enough content to ensure that you'll be a little bit better at your job than you were before you listened. Join us on our journey to better by trying out our free two-week trial at vvn.supercast.tech.